Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome again to another edition of A Reason for Hope. Uh, we are here for the next hour to take your questions on the, the most controversial but perhaps life-changing subjects any human being will ever consider. If you've got questions about the Bible, what the Bible has to say about uh, what it means to know God in a personal way, why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, maybe even ask some tough questions about that, uh, we'd love to be able to answer those questions, no matter how skeptical they might be. Uh, the only standard for the questions that we answer uh, relating to the Bible and how the Bible relates to the entire spectrum of life, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question and uh, just to let you know right off the bat, uh, we're going to do our best to answer it in a biblical way. So if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to get, and we would invite you to be part of our conversation. Uh, you can uh, get in touch with us by using a number of different avenues to uh, communicate uh, your questions to us. You can visit us on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, follow along there, and uh, log on and uh, post your questions in the, uh, the comment corner there, as we call it. We're also available for you on YouTube. Uh, go to A Reason for Hope on YouTube. That is our YouTube channel. You can log on in there and get your questions to us uh, through that particular venue. Or, of course, you can go to our main church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, just click the Watch Live tab. That will take you to uh, the, the place where you can watch our program. And uh, that may be the uh, most reliable place to watch the program. Sometimes uh, social media platforms can be iffy as far as content is concerned. But if uh, you want the pure, unadulterated content here on A Reason for Hope, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, click on the Watch Live tab, and then you can log on and get your questions to us. Again, uh, wherever you'd like to go uh, in the Word of God, we'd love to go there with you. Uh, it's your calls and your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, before we go any further, Sean, would you like to open us up in a word of prayer? Absolutely. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. I want to ask that we would be in your spirit as well. Equip us to speak not only your truth, but your heart, and give those listening ears to hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, starting us off, of course, our standard is sincerity, but sometimes we like to be generous. Uh, we received <laughs> some uh, criticism for previous videos and answering questions that we probably have dealt with twice this month, but neither here nor there. We discussed on Wednesday, Thursday for those listening on Reach Radio, the topic of evidence and what that is. And as usual, whenever I make the mistake of tagging atheism in our video's topics, we tend to attract a few. So the argument was put forward to us, well, you're quoting 1 Corinthians in order to prove the Bible's reliability. Isn't that just proving, uh, quoting the Bible to prove the Bible? and thus the circular reasoning is trying to be exposed. We believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God, in other words. Which, yeah. of course, wasn't even remotely close to what we said. We used the Bible like any other collection of data and yeah, held it yeah, to its and, standard. And, 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 uh, and once again, I think uh, that question 
deserves a, a bit of an answer, no matter what level of sincerity or, or insincerity uh, might be associated with it. Because there's an awful lot of people out there who say, well, you know, you just believe the Bible because it says it's the Word of God. Uh, you know, it, that, that uh, just doesn't really even make sense logically. And I would agree. I'd be the first one to agree. If the only reason we say the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible says it's the Word of God. Make no bones about it. It does state that the Bible is not man's opinions and takes about God. Rather, it's God's revelation of himself to man. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, we are told all Scripture, literally each and every verse you're going to find in the Bible, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. No less a person than Jesus himself said, sanctify them by the truth, referring to the Bible. Your word is truth. So what the Bible claims about itself, pretty major claim, I would say, is that uh, from Genesis to Revelation, what we are dealing with is not something man came up with, couldn't if he would and wouldn't if he could, but what God has to say uh, about a relationship with him. Now, it's one thing to make that claim, obviously, but when someone in our increasingly skeptical culture says something to the effect of, well, why should I believe that claim, aside from just the assertion that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, how will we respond to that? Well, I always like to start off this conversation the same way our uh, dearly and recently glorified brother Walter Martin once dealt with when he was having a debate on <laughs> yeah. the air. He was challenged with this very same assertion, which again shows this is nothing new, and no matter how many times we have to answer the question, it will continue to be. So for those taking notes at home, remember this, it will come up again. When he was challenged in saying, you're quoting the Bible to prove the Bible, that's circular reasoning. He held up the books, which is what the the word Bible means and said, who told you the Bible was a book? And the atheist he was debating with got a little flustered and said, well, it is. And he said, well, who told you that? He said, well, it obviously is. You're holding up a book. And he said, you know, it's a complexion of 66 books that are all verifying each other. So if I quote 1 Corinthians in order to verify claims made in Isaiah or in Matthew, I'm quoting three independent sources. The reason why we've compiled these sources together in the Bible is because the word Anglican Bible, which is books, is in order to verify that verification topic. Now, if you doubt the reliability or the credibility of these individual books, then the rational approach is to take them on a case-by-case -case basis, not to uh, deem them guilty by association. And by association, I mean, you use the word God, I'm an atheist, and I'm so smart that I deem anything that mentions God as false. That right. is not objective. Right. That is circular reasoning, actual circular reasoning. God is false. Why? Because God is false. Because anything pertaining to God, anything that mentions God, is a lie. Why? Because God is false. God is a lie. Well, thank you. Now we've joined ourselves in this little merry-go-round, but you haven't actually made a case. So when we reference the Bible, we first need to know what it is, and that is, again, 
a collection of 66 books with 40 different authors written over 1,500 years of human history, all tested according to a very stringent and unforgiving metric for people who claimed to be speaking for God, were verified by public miracles, prophecies, and the like, and ultimately collected for us and tested accordingly as well in order to properly communicate to us, as you said, not information but revelation about Israel's God. The only God who's put his money where his mouth is. Right. So that is what we mean when we say, according to the Bible, this is what is being referenced. We understand the Bible is not a source, it's a collection of sources. And the more sources you have, 66 would be a start. In fact, six would be impressive. Yeah. I can verify information. But if I don't like the information, if I have an emotional or irrational bias against said information, I decide in advance these conclusions are not the sort of things I want to come to. I don't want to be dragged along to an end. I've already decided I don't want to go. Well, then you're not objective. You're not rational. You're circular. You're saying that this is not going to lead me to God. Therefore, anything you try to lead me to God with is false. Well, that's not objective either. So make sure that when someone challenges you with this, you at least know what the title is, the books, not a book, that you know what information is, that it's not sources all verifying itself, it's sources verifying each other. Right. And if they don't like it, don't waste your time. But nonetheless, we still wanted to take the time to answer this, not because Mr. Harrison is listening, but because you all are going to be hearing this too. Yeah. And, you know, when people ask me, uh, why do you believe the Bible is God's inspired word? Uh, I'll answer them in a a pretty direct manner. I say, well, uh, first of all, uh, we can believe the Bible is divinely inspired because it is true to its claims archaeologically. In other words, we can take a look at the people, places, things, and events the Bible describes in history and uh, ask ourselves, are these verified or falsified by historical evidence? Nelson Gluck, the uh, famous uh, archaeologist who by no means was a Christian or believer, said that there has never yet been an archaeological discovery that has contradicted the accounts in the Bible. Rather, they've only served to confirm them. So archaeology is one of the reasons we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is true to the events that we see in human history. Secondly, we believe the Bible is the Word of God because it has been preserved divinely. And by that, what I mean is that the Bible that we have before us is a miracle of preservation. The New Testament alone is based on over 5,800 manuscripts in the early original language Greek. To add to that, we have over 18,000 examples of versions, that is, translations of the Bible in other languages from the time of Christ. To add to that, we have over 86,000 examples of verse quotations of early church officials to one another quoting uh, the Bible, all dating to within 500 years from the time of Christ. And that's being very liberal in these assertions. So you put all that together, and uh, we discover something. The message of the Bible has been preserved so much so that even uh, if we ask the most intensely anti-supernatural scholars to evaluate which parts of the New Testament are in any ways held in doubt as being true to the original, uh, they would come up with less than one half of one page of text, and no major doctrine of Christianity is called into account in any of these disputed passages. So, you know, we have this archaeologically, historically accurate book, We have a doctrinally consistent book. It agrees down to the crossing the T's and the dotting of the I's 
on the most controversial subjects known to man, even though it was written, as you mentioned, over 1,400 years in time by 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages. It was preserved uh, miraculously. No other ancient document can even hold a candle to the amount of manuscript preservation we have with the Bible. But uh, you can have all of that and still not have something that's supernatural. The thing that really is the kicker for me as to why I believe the Bible is the Word of God is that it demonstrates its supernatural quality through predictive prophecy. That is, we have verified examples of individuals that were lifted up and above time to be able to see and forecast specific events that would take place in the future uh, without seeing them. There is only one way that you can have accurate predictive prophecy. First of all, the source of that information has to be timeless. They have to be able to see future events before they take place. Secondly, that source also has to be all-powerful to come together and uh, make sure that every possible contingency and decision that people are going to make come together so that these events take place. Well, what kind of examples of predictive prophecy do we have? One of the most powerful is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. When we visited Israel, we got a chance to see the Isaiah scroll on display in uh, the, uh, the Museum of the Book there at the uh, Israeli Museum of Natural History. How old is that Isaiah scroll? Best estimates, probably 200 years before Christ. Okay, so 200 years at a minimum before Christ. Okay, and that's being very, very generous to liberal sensibilities there. 200 years before Christ, we have these words. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be very high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Uh, for what they had been told, they, not been told, they will uh, hear, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Uh, it goes on, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender root and a shoot out of barren ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, and our sins he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, I uh, shared that scripture with a uh, friend of mine who came from a Jewish background, uh, and he said, oh, you know, well, that's, that's just uh, your New Testament. I said, no, that's your Bible. That's the book of Isaiah, accurately forecasting the coming and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, accurately, historically, we're talking about, what, about 700 years in advance before the time of Jesus. Around eight, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the bottom line is this. That's why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, not because our dear sainted grandmother believed it, although that's a good thing, not because we belong to a group uh, that tries to uh, duck and cover and doesn't deal with uh, tough charges and skeptical uh, attacks against the Bible. We do that every day. Uh, we believe it because we believe the evidence stands up, and we believe that's no accident. We believe that God is so concerned about people knowing him in a personal way that he has given us this overwhelming evidence that uh, God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us through his word, and the ultimate manifestation of him speaking to us through his word is the record of the life, death, and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, an event that can be satisfied to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer in the annals of history. So, speaking of history, there are a few other follow-ups, which again, we want to equip you for. And again, these storehouses from the Well of Ignorance are very easy to deal with if you're willing to do some homework. We'll be doing some of it for you, but don't take our word for it. Look this information up. He followed through with the accusation of circular reasoning by saying, would you like to go over all the gods and religions that came before your God, who were also born of a virgin, died, and then came back to life, healed the sick, etc.? Be happy to. Name two. If we're going to actually read these religious sources, it turns out... there there is a deal out there called uh, the Zeitgeist movie. And plenty of other people. That that, uh, popularly asserts that Christianity just borrowed from mystery religions and paganism and repackage that in a way for Jewish consumption. That's why we have the story of Jesus. What's Which the problem with that? Well, several things. First of all, the movie also goes on to assert that all world events are orchestrated by international bankers and is the main and I guess most popularized proponent of the tragedy of September 11, 2001, being an inside job done by the U.S. government. It makes a lot of assertions, but with not a lot of evidence, just a lot of dramatic portrayals and, of course, assertions from their list of, uh, I guess, uh, pseudonym-named scholars. Yeah. The most popular of which is named in real life Richard Carrier, who's thought of along the same lines as a Holocaust denier, but morons can still speak truth statements, so we don't want to just say because he's not thought of highly in his field, we dismiss everything out of hand. When it comes to the claims of these pagan religions, we want to make sure of two things. First of all, you set the rules, not us, the religions that came before Christianity, so we're only going to limit ourselves to the kind of religious text that actually came from these pagan sources, not what was said about them, not what's being written about them or extrapolated into them today, and not sources written by them that post-date Christianity. Because note, is it also possible, just taking a shot, that these religions, as fluid and malleable as they are, because that's the advantage of not having to follow truth, if you like something, just add it on, you can borrow from Christianity. But if they wrote things about Christianity, unique to Christianity, before Christianity, that's your case case. Understand, right? If these texts date before Christianity and talk about him being born of a virgin, rising from the dead, dying on a cross, etc., etc., that is something. Now, you said just dying, and I guess that's vague and probably as general as healing the sick. There's plenty of religions that do that, but not in a way that would be exclusive to Christianity. So let's just focus on the two that are unique. Being born of a virgin. Well, the accusations usually made, and it has been made in Zeitgeist, that the pagan god Horus was born of a virgin, that the famous and most prominent Buddha of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, I believe is how you say his name, was born of a virgin and others, uh, Krishna as well in Hindu religion. The problem is the facts, because all of the reports that we have before Christianity that report, for instance, Krishna's birth was a unique one, according to the Bhagavad Gita and other sources that report on these things. There is a interesting phenomena that took place. Maya, who was the mother of Krishna, gave birth to him without the natural means of producing children. Uh, Here's also another detail that unfortunately Carrier and uh, Zeitgeist left out. She had had seven kids before Krishna, not a virgin. 
Also note as well, when we read about the accounts of Buddha, the same issue is at play. She was the child of a king, and of course there was great celebration at the time of his birth, but no information is given regarding the, um, I won't uh, make coarse references, but just noting whether his mother was a virgin or not. You have to infer that into the text because he was a celebrated prince. Always the case. And finally, when we look at Osiris, if we look at the Egyptian book of the day, or a Horus rather, yes, that's the most common common one because Richard Carrier himself is uh, a self-proclaimed Egyptologist, and of course he, I'm sure, is great in his field, but he's not a good uh, source on comparative religions, because guess what? There are around three to five different versions of the Horus account, not just regarding his birth, but also of his life, and the birth is a rather graphic one. Again, I can't be modest about this, so I'll just report it as it is. The most popularly accepted one that doesn't confuse him with his father Osiris is that he was torn, uh, his father Osiris, into 13 or so pieces and scattered throughout the Nile River by one of his rival deities. His wife Isis, not the terrorist organization, the Egyptian goddess, uh, recovered all of the parts except for her favorite one, which was used for making children, and sculpted it out of wood. She then transformed into a bird and copulated with his corpse in order to produce Horus. So given the information we have, and I've had these conversations with people face-to-face as well, the combination of bestiality and necrophilia is not a virgin birth. Right. So what is the problem? Well, what about... um, Oh, what's the name of it? Uh, Mithra. Wasn't he born of a virgin? Yeah, by a virgin you mean a rock. That's the earliest source that we have on anything pertaining to him, and that postdates Christianity. We know next to nothing about Mithraism, and the one thing that people claim that it borrowed from that Christianity borrowed from it actually either A was borrowed from them, and B is never even said. Or we can go, what about Addis? Well, what about all the... It's based on ignorance. The people who are making these claims, whether you've heard them from people that you trust and shouldn't, or you are making these up yourself and are showing yourself to be dishonest, you haven't read the pagan sources. I've respected religions different than my own to look up what they have written about themselves and realize that the comparisons are inappropriate. I want to attack a religion based on what it says, not what it doesn't say. And if these ancient pagan religions are all copies from Christianity, then why is it that every single example that's given to us by scholars are based on lies? So that's what is most important in understanding this here. We can go into other examples, Zoroaster and the claims that we made against this are blatantly false or over-convoluted and saying, oh, well, Zoroaster healed the sick, Jesus healed the sick, therefore Jesus is a copy of Zoroaster. Little general, don't you think? Any divine figure can perform miracles. The question is as to why Jesus did those things, what he was trying to prove. If they were showing off, great, but Jesus did these for a reason. If you have questions on that, we'll be happy to deal with them. But if someone comes to you regarding these things, and again, I don't expect you have this all memorized, you don't have to go chapter and page into the Egyptian Book of the Dead and, you know, just basically floor someone like that, you can say, you know, that's interesting. You know, if they copied from Christianity or vice versa, that's what your assertion is, I'd want to know, can I look that up and get back to you? It's a good test for sincerity, and it might be a good source of edification for you, because I guarantee you, if you're willing to be 
put in a position where you have to do your homework on your faith and under pressure, those are the ones you remember. Those are the things that you take to heart. So don't worry, A, to those listening about people who make these assertions that Christianity is a copy. It comes from either false or unreliable sources or ignorance, depending on yours. And of course, to the person who asked this question, I hope that you got this from someone else, because I'd hate to think that you were deliberately lying to me. There's other examples of contradictions which he asserts are in the Bible. We'll get into them later. We also want to reward all of you for participating in the broadcast, so why don't we change the topic a little bit, go more into some practical questions. The first is from Mike, who wants to know, what's the best way to fight the flesh when it's trying to drag you away from godly things? You know, I think, uh, Mike, that's an excellent question, and the answer, I think, is a lot more simple than some people give it credit for. Maybe the most important priority that we have to say in in this battle is something that is described for us in the book of Galatians chapter 5. In in Galatians chapter 5, there's really good news in here for you, Mike, in that the Bible tells us that the struggles that you're describing here are really part and parcel of all of our experiences as believers. Uh, In uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, we read, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now notice, what the Bible tells us uh, about our situation we find ourselves in in this world, Mike, pretty clear. Uh, We uh, who are born again, believers in Christ, are forgiven by God for all our sins, past, present, and future. The Lord indwells us through His Holy Spirit. The Bible says you're a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But the Bible also tells us, in no uncertain terms, that we are going to have a struggle with our old fallen nature till the time we see Jesus face to face. If you don't believe that's true, read through the Apostle Paul's description of his personal struggle that we find in the book of Romans chapter 7. How do we overcome that? Well, if the flesh lusts against the spirit, that means a strong desire. What is the strong desire of the flesh? To rule and run our lives. And the spirit lusts against the flesh. What is the spirit's desire? To rule and run our lives. And these two are in opposition, so you don't do the things that you choose. You see, we as believers in Christ are given a brand new kind of uh, set of dilemmas each and every day, Uh, as opposed to a person who doesn't know God at all, who can't choose to do something that pleases God. I'm not saying they can't do uh, morally righteous things or be nice to other people, but those who aren't born again have no connection with God, have no relationship with Him, and so by definition, what they do can't please God. It can't make up for that lack of relationship we have with Him. But when we have a relationship with God, suddenly we are free to be able to choose to say yes or no to a relationship with God and receive His power to overcome those fleshly desires that will still be with us until we see the Lord face to face. And so uh, when you ask the question, what does it mean to get uh, victory over a particular area of the flesh? Uh, I would say that the best way to go about it is not by saying no to the flesh. A lot of religious people will come up with a lot of different uh, checklists and programs and and, uh, different uh, uh, approaches in a practical sense that will try to get you to, say, leave behind some manifestation of the lust of the flesh. 
Uh, you know, maybe that's alcohol. Maybe that's pornography. Maybe that's infidelity in relationships. Maybe that's hatred of other people. You name it. They will come up with all these different programs to do it. But uh, really, in essence, all these programs do is put a very heavy lid on a boiling pot. What we do as believers is say, okay, I want to say no to those things in this world that tend to get the best of me, not by saying no to them or not by trying to convince myself that somehow, oh, you know, that's very bad. You know, I, I, that, that's really uh, horrible stuff. Uh, a friend of mine who did jail time for selling drugs once told me something I'll never forget. He said, Scott, no one would do drugs if they didn't make you feel good. Um, people do that for that reason. They don't realize that, uh, like, uh, uh, again, a uh, famous Hollywood screenwriter once put it, uh, drugs work until they don't, and then they destroy your life. Uh, the, the only reason people do that sort of thing is because they get an immediate gratification. You don't say no to the temptation to use drugs because you go, oh, it'll feel awful. Oh, it'll be bad. Oh, you know. You say you get victory over that by saying, you know what? My relationship with Jesus means more to me than that. The joy that I have in my walk with the Lord, the peace that I experience with him, the previews of heavenly glory that he gives to me mean far more to me than anything along this line. And the love that he gives to me and this love relationship, I don't want to have anything get in the way of that. And so I say no, as the old hymn put it, to those vain things that charm me most by saying yes to something better. And understand there's room for grace as well. Anyone who's overcome an addiction or had to deal with breaking old habits, especially those that are directly pertaining to the lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life, this world doesn't make it easy, which is no. why it has to be something that we give ourselves enough grace and enough of an environment where we're at as little of a disadvantage as possible. For example, when dealing with pornography, what were some of the steps that I took in order to combat it? I didn't just say, God, forgive me, God, heal me, God, make me knew. That would happen, the promise would be fulfilled, but what could I do in the meantime? How could I put feet to my faith that God would see that through? And also to acknowledge it's going to be a fight in the meantime. Well, first of all, I got rid of consoles that couldn't have filters on them, which was a sacrifice, but a worthwhile one. Again, why? Because I deem Jesus as better than a $300 PS3. The second was to put filters on the things I could, as well as accountability software on my phone or on my desktops because that added layer of accountability not only right. kept me from doing those things when I was in weak positions, but was also something I could reinforce when I was at my strongest. When I had better moments, I took advantage of them by right. shoring up my defenses. Right. When I was under, under attack, I was thankful for the times I invested ahead of time. Because Mike, as I'm sure you're aware, and anyone else here listening, when you're tempted, you don't really care. You don't remember the things that are more of a priority. You aren't thinking in the heavenly. That's why they call it in the flesh. But when you're preparing for those times, that's smart. That's wisdom. And the same thing, too, is when you fall, not if, when you fall, you surround yourself with the kind of people who aren't going to kick you, but are going to help you get back up. We're yeah, going to remind you of key. the promises yeah. of God. Yeah. Because I can't tell you how many people have been and had genuine and authentic desires to pursue Jesus and to deal with the lust of their flesh, but because the people they surrounded themselves with couldn't love somebody out of a wet paper bag, they 
put them in a position where they not only fell into their sin, which is to be expected with the first time you try, but also to, and this is unfortunate, made them question their salvation. Because if you were as holy and as righteous as us, we're not Pharisees ever, then you wouldn't deal with this. You're, you should be living the sinless life. You, you should be adhering to our doctrines and principles. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Ugh. Yeah, that helps. Oy. So Oy. remember the point that's being made. Allow room for grace, allow room for wisdom, and make sure that you take advantage of every possible practical step you can take as God keeps His Word. And the point being made is this, not only are we pursuing what is good, not just running from everything evil, we're aware of the fact we're the evil, and until this changes, which is not an overnight process, this is going to continue. But we can be thankful for even the moments yeah. where it's not continuing, because that in and of itself is a miracle. Thankfulness, wisdom, and of course, grace. Don't yeah. forget those. Yeah, yeah. Interesting question here from uh, Mac on our uh, YouTube site, uh, and that is to be found at uh, A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Uh, check it out. Uh, Mac uh, writes, is it a sin to love something you excel at, like golfing or a sport? Well, I guess we could say yes and no. It all depends on what place that, uh, that skill or sport uh, or uh, particular ability has within your life. And this is what I mean by this. Uh, you know, there's a reason why we as human beings play sports. What is the reason for that? The, the ultimate reason is because we are made in the image and likeness of a purposeful God. Uh, every sport that you play, unless it's uh, playing that game that SpongeBob and Patrick played, what was it called? They didn't know either. Yeah, so, uh, you know, where the rules were just changing moment by moment. G7, just, king yeah, me, king yeah, it's just, me. Just silliness, right? Uh, you know, the reason that we play sports is because they have structure and rules and goals and abilities to be able to measure uh, ourselves as to how we are achieving those goals. In essence, sport is an exercise in the divinely imparted uh, part of the image and likeness of God that we would call a need for purpose within our lives. There's two real attributes of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God that God has planted within us. It's almost like him stacking the deck. Solomon talked about God planting eternity in our hearts in, Proverbs, in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, and part and parcel of that is that we have this overwhelming need for significance and security in our walk with God. Now, you ask somebody who really gets involved with a particular sport, what is the, the motivation behind all of that? Really, when it's all peeled away, we find these image and likeness of God parts of us engaging there. You know, let, let's take golf, for instance. I like playing golf, but uh, golf is a sport with a tremendous amount of rules behind it. Uh, one golfer, I guess, this weekend got disqualified because he put too much of a uh, kind of a, uh, a, uh, a white marker kind of a substance on the head of his golf club that apparently violated PGA rules. I mean, these rules can be uh, microscopic if you're not careful. Why? Because golf is a purposeful sport. It's governed by rules. You play according to the rules, you win in golf. What does winning do? Well, it gives you a sense of significance. Your fellow golfers look at you and say, you played very, very well. And we go, yeah, I, I have some significance about myself as a human being based upon how my peers look at me. 
Does it give us a sense of security? Well, in, in a sense, I guess you could say that it does because I say, you know, I'm a worthwhile human being because I'm able to play at a particular level and people hold me in high esteem because of that ability to play at a particular level. You know, you don't see an awful lot of people playing golf by themselves. It's very social sport. It's socially interactive. And so that need for security to belong to a group comes in there uh, as well. Now, if I look at golf and I go, you know, it's an exercise in purposefulness and significance and security. And these are all things that God has placed in my heart as a human being. And I realize that good on you. But if I take God out of the equation, now say I have ultimate significance, I have ultimate security, I have ultimate purpose within my life because I chase a little ball about this big uh, around a meadow and as soon as I get close to it, I hit it again. Um, pretty soon you're gonna find that although golf or sports reflects that idea of being in the image and likeness of God, it's designed in a sense to push us toward a greater reality. Uh, one of the things that really blessed me when I became a Christian was I've always been involved with sports, and uh, I read a pamphlet that was given out at our Fellowship of Christian Athletes group called Total Release. Uh, and, and by that, what I mean is you can compete in a sport without being motivated by fear, without being motivated by hatred of other people, of trying to get over on them. If you decide, uh, according to the book of uh, Colossians chapter 3, and, uh, and verse uh, 21, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. If I go into a sport and I say, you know what, Lord, I realize this is just a golf game or I'm just going to go for a run, I'm going to run a 5K or 10K race, uh, you know, I want to do this to honor you. I want to do this to glorify you. Uh, I want to take this body that you've given to me and honor you in this way. Well, if you look for your security and significance based upon your relationship with God and compete in a race like that, man, it just takes away the fear. It, it takes away, you know, the, the, the resentment you might feel towards others uh, doing better than you or, or it, it doesn't get you suckered in to those uh, endless, uh, I gotta show I'm better than you sort of games. You're free, you're free to compete for the approval of one person and that's the Lord. I think of Eric Liddell, uh, the uh, subject of the movie Chariots of Fire. His sister was kind of chastising him because she felt his ability to run the 400 and 200 meters uh, was uh, getting in the way of what she felt God's greater call was on his life and that is to be a missionary in China. Uh, and Eric Liddell said something uh, really wonderful to his sister. He said, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's that idea of total release there. So if you can take things like golf or, you know, in your case, Sean, your ability to uh, work in, in arts and sculpting and things like this, uh, the ability, say, to be a writer, the ability to do animation, the ability to do, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of different skills. Uh, if you can do these sort of things and do them first and foremost as unto the Lord and to do them with a loving attitude, not because you're trying to get over on other people, but because you care about other people, man, I'll tell you, it'll completely revolutionize the way you look at these activities and you can honor God. But if you put the activity before these things, uh, that's an idol. And the thing about idols is they can be very attractive, 
but ultimately they lead us away from God and to God. And maybe that's the best question to ask. Yeah, and that's also key because it prevents you from being ultimately disappointed. If I were to have some sort of hand injury and wasn't able to sculpt anymore, it'd be a bummer, but it wouldn't mean that my purpose for living has been taken away. I may get a vocal disease infection right. or injury, and I wouldn't be able to do this program anymore, but my purpose isn't locked into my ability to speak. This is just one of many ways I am grateful to be able to do what God's called me to do. And if He hasn't called me, then that would be probably a telltale sign I can do other things. Right. But people who set up these idols in their lives end up like that sad lady in Seinfeld who says, if I cannot play tennis, I have no reason to live. Make sure that you do these things because you're thankful to the God who equipped you to do them. If you do anything more than that, it's going to end up either disappointing you or it could be, God forbid, taken away from you. Or at best, just a distraction Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, from what really matters, and that's a relationship with God. Great question, Mac. Thanks for bringing that up. All right. uh, Going out to our website, we got a question from Isaiah who wants to know what was meant by Jesus when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, we want to make sure that we don't just say, what did Jesus mean by this? When did he say it? To whom did he say it to? And how was it later applied? When we go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, the audience... I said Luke. John, uh, he was speaking to the Apostle Thomas. Now, was he an individual who had not seen or had seen? He, at that point, had not seen. Not seen what? The resurrection, of course, but what had he seen? He had seen uh, the life of Jesus for three years 365, 24-7. So he had seen his miracles, he had heard his teachings, he had heard his predictions of this very thing happening. Seen his character and all kinds of challenges of life. So all, and he had also heard the testimony of the other 11 disciples for whatever reason. Judas Judas was gone and Peter was there, so he would have been number. Anyway, 10, yeah. Yeah. Um, The other 10 apostles (laughs) who, of course, had seen Jesus, but he didn't believe them. So what was Jesus kind of prodding him about. Blessed are you, for you have seen. What? The resurrection. Blessed are those who have not seen, which is literally everyone else in human history apart from the 500 documented witnesses we have. So what is the blessedness, the supreme happiness of those who had not seen? Not because we're not unobjective or unwilling to participate in critical thinking, but because like Thomas, we didn't cross our arms and go, well, you say that Jesus rose from the dead because you said so. That's circular logic. No, we have no reason to make this up. Look, and he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see the wound in his side and put my hand into it and put my fingers through the holes in his wrists. Well, all well and good, but here's the problem. That sort of attitude doesn't have an off switch. If you're only responding with skepticism, you'll never get to an objective answer. But when he got the information that he needed, Jesus met him where he was at, it is on that testimony that we can all come to a rational conclusion, which is why he said that. Blessed are those who are willing to do something with the information, not just cross their arms and go, nuh-uh, not good enough. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, you know, I, I love that account for two reasons. Uh, first of all, Jesus didn't look at Thomas and say, uh, Thomas, you are a complete washout as a disciple. You know, uh, these guys said this to you, that should have been enough. You know, like you mentioned, Jesus met Thomas specifically at his point of need, if you will. Uh, when the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord, Thomas said, you know, I will not, unless I can take my hand, put it in the wound in his side, referring to the gash wound that was inflicted on Jesus by the Romans to make sure he was dead 
Uh, his death had to be certified by no less than four witnesses, and the Romans would not take someone down unless they were sure they were dead, or the hand wounds in his his hands, really in his wrist. Anywhere from your elbow up was your hand in the ancient world. Yeah, but uh, probably they, they put it right here because there's a cluster of bones and ligaments that would support the weight of an individual on a cross. Uh, if you put it right here, pretty soon it would just tear right through your your hand and be done with it. The documentation to support this you can read on the physical death of Jesus by William D. Edwards. They yeah. did an examination of this historically and archaeologically. It went through here. Yeah. So Thomas has his standard of faith. And we're told eight days later, right, the disciples are meeting. Could you imagine what a long eight days that was with a guy like Thomas sitting around going, you say you've seen Jesus. Yeah, right. Where is he? Well, no, I'm sure he's going to show up any minute now. We're going to have another meeting. We're going to wait for him. He walked right through the wall. You won't believe it. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I don't believe that. I need more than that. Uh, why? Because Thomas was so crushed, as the rest of the disciples were, by what had happened to Jesus. Uh, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, forsooth, we should have known this all along. You know, it was, these were regular people. These were individuals that were struggling with what they had gone through. They thought the kingdom of God was coming. They thought Jesus was going to kick out the Romans and show his glory to the whole world at this point. And so they were very, very confused. And so Thomas, bless his heart, had a standard by which he would base his faith. You're telling me he rose from the dead. Here's what I need to see in order to believe that he rose from the dead. Not some song and dance, not some hallucination, not uh, the uh, old mistaken identity theory that maybe Jesus had someone who looked like him and they thought he rose from the dead. Because Thomas was called the, Thomas yeah, was called yeah. the twin. Yeah, Thomas uh, you know, said, this is the standard, and, and I'm going to wait for it. And when Jesus appears to Thomas, he says something very interesting. He tells him to reach your hand, put it in my side, put your fingers in my hands, be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas falls on his knee. And this is what I love about it. He said, my Lord and my God. He didn't fold his arms and say, well, okay, but uh, you need to answer that thing about why bad things happen to good people or I won't believe in you. Uh, you know, that's the problem of a lot of skeptics. And the reason that I ask a lot of skeptics, if I were to answer this question to your satisfaction, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Because if they go, no, well, then the problem isn't that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. And a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Thomas, bless his pointy little head, he gets so much bad press among Christians, but he had his standard, Jesus met that standard, and guess what? Thomas fell on his knees and worshiped Jesus and said, my Lord and my God, which the Jehovah's Witnesses have a hard time explaining away. And Muslims. And then Jesus responds by saying, because you've seen me, have you believed? You know, in other words, Jesus ratifies the fact that Thomas has saving faith. That's a pretty good thing. He goes, but blessed, more blessed are those who haven't seen yet and believed. Why are we more blessed? Because we haven't seen and believed? Well, you know, I, I love the fact that Jesus said that because if he hadn't said that, we might be saying, well, we're all losers. We didn't get the chance to see Jesus resurrected and put our finger in the nail prints and his hand in his side like Thomas did. I guess we're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is to Thomas, you've received an incredible blessing an incredible privilege to be able to be born in the time you're in, to have this experience that you're having right now. But guess what? There's people that are coming that won't have that direct 
experience. They won't will need walk it by faith, and they won't need it because they will evaluate the evidence and they will come to the same conclusion. And God is going to bless them in their lives for believing. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, what does it say? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must first believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Man, I'll tell you, the fact that you and I believe in Jesus because we've taken a look at the gospel accounts, we've evaluated the historical evidence for his resurrection, we've uh, responded to his personal call spiritually to put our faith and trust in him, we are going to receive, gang, a blessing in heaven when we see the Lord someday that is absolutely going to blow our minds. We're not second-class citizens because we weren't part of the 12. We are, in Jesus' estimation, more blessed because we believe his testimony. We believe his word. All right. So um, you got that going for you. Which is nice. nice. <laughs> um, question from Marie. Make sure we leave enough time for the contradictions so that we can uh, answer those questions as well. But a question from Marie who wants to know, where did Jesus go when he died but before the resurrection? Thank you. Uh, the clearest passage we have is found in the book of Ephesians, and it's not necessarily a controversial one, but one that kind of flies in the face of a lot of very bizarre theories about this. What we're told in Scripture is obviously the heart of the earth, but what are the implications of that? Yeah, in Ephesians chapter 4, we are told, but to each one, this is verse 7, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he first descended into the lowermost parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now notice this picture of the ascension of Jesus says what? He didn't ascend alone. Who was with him? Those who had physically died hoping for the coming of the Messiah. Right. Old Testament saints looking forward to Jesus' coming we're at a place, according to Luke chapter 16, called Abraham's bosom, right at Abraham's side. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of uh, fellowship with the saints who had gone on. Why couldn't those Old Testament saints go directly into the presence of God? Because we're told in the fullness of time God sent his son. What does that mean? Well, looking forward to God taking away all of our sins through the sacrifice of his son was something that was, in a sense keeping these people locked in this place because those events had not yet taken place in history. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, we are told that uh, when he died, he went to that dual compartment place that Luke 16 describes called uh, Sheol or the place of the dead. He announced according to 1 Peter chapter 3 that he had accomplished eternal salvation and then he emptied that compartment called Abraham's bosom. Why do we know this? Because the New Testament tells us that now, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can go directly into the presence of God without a way station, if you will. So what was Jesus during that time? I'll tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't suffering in hell. No. There are some creeds that say that. There's some overblown songs that seem to indicate that. Uh, there is no evidence whatsoever in the New Testament of this, that any part of our atonement, Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, took place anywhere else but where? On the cross, when he said, it is finished, it wasn't to be continued. John 19 reads, as it still does today. Yeah, yeah. And so 
Uh, great question, but uh, when that comes up, we ask, okay, what did he do during it? He wasn't just kicking it in the tomb. He wasn't just, uh, you know, in some heavenly place going, oh, Father, so great to be back with you in heaven. Oh, do I have to go back and spend another 40 days with them? Uh, I guess I got to go back and resurrect now. No, we're told that these are the things that he accomplished. And uh, that's probably the best answer to that question. Yeah, no, it's not just one passage. It's several and making sure the pieces all fit together in a consistent way. And that's good doctrine. But if, on the other hand, someone says, no, this is much more dramatic, or this is much more meaningful, or, oh, I had this vision. It conflicts with Scripture, so sorry. Yeah. Um, Quick shout-out to Adani. He's watching tonight from Ghana. Uh, shout-out to all of our watchers and uh Reason for Hope uh, family in Ghana tonight. And overseas, we got Mike across the pond from England. Yes. So, All right, uh, quick uh, series of contradictions, quote-unquote. We'll finish up with this. Uh, three statements, fortunately. Well, I guess let's start with the unfortunately. He didn't provide any reference, but good thing we are more interested in evidence than he was when we make a claim against the Bible. The good news is, though, that he made all of his objections to the Bible in the same basic ballpark regarding the account of the empty tomb. Right. So we can go to each one in the four Gospels with hopefully some bit of flair and clarity. The first <laughs> contradiction is apparently the rock was rolled away from the tomb or had to be rolled away by people who were there. Now, obviously, it would be weird if the rock was reported to be rolled away or had to be rolled away for them already. But even then, if that was true, which it's not, that wouldn't be a contradiction. That'd be an explanation of detail as to how the stone got rolled away. Yeah. And this is why it's important to note what is a contradiction. A contradiction, we'll be discussing this in our rhetoric classes here soon, is a violation of the second formal law of logic, A does not equal non-A, that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. Right. If in both cases the stone is has been rolled away, the people who were there rolling away the stone just explained how it got in the rolled away state. But note, every single gospel account does say the stone was already rolled away. So we'll verify that with evidence. Remember that word? In a moment. The second is that how many women were at the tomb? One says one, one says two, one says three. Well, of course, that would also not be a contradiction. It if doesn't a, say only one or only two or only three at one point. And note, I can infer that into the text, but that's not evidence now, is it? That's my bias into the text. If it mentions that Mary and um, Martha, or uh, Mary Magdalene and Salome and all these others, Johannes, were all there, then that means that they would have to, in every account, all say the same amount of people, or it's a hopeless contradiction they couldn't keep their facts straight. Well, if it mentions the women who were there, if it mentions that other women were there, if another account mentions some of the women who were there, what's the whole point of the story? How many people were there or that women were there? Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, a couple things I'd, I'd throw out for all of that, just as far as contradictions go. Uh, sometimes people will set up an unreasonable standard of this is a contradiction that they wouldn't apply to anything else. Great illustration of this uh, is, uh, say, you know, this, today I went downtown. I was downtown earlier today. And say I uh, told Sean earlier today, yeah, I, I went downtown, and while I was downtown, I was over uh, by the uh, City Hall building, and I saw the fire chief there. And I shared that with Sean because I knew that, uh, you know, he might be interested in uh, becoming a fireman, and uh, I'm, I'm using this as an illustration, and, uh, you know, he'd be interested in that I ran into the fire chief. I run into another friend of mine who's into politics and say, oh, guess what? I saw uh, Mayor Regina Romero down there when I was uh, down, downtown. 
Uh, oh, well, you know, that, was, that must have really been something to see the mayor. Well, say Sean and my friend get together later, and uh, my friend says to Sean, hey, guess what? Scott was downtown earlier today, and he saw the mayor. And then Sean would look at him and go, well, wait a minute. I saw Scott, and he said he saw the fire chief. We can't trust Scott because he's saying two different things. Well, if they came to me and tried to find a way to reconcile this, I'd say, yeah, I was downtown and I saw the mayor and the fire chief. One doesn't exclude the other. And so when we talk about the gospel accounts, particularly of the women and the encounters that they have here, and we look at them not as a contradiction, but as an addition of detail, that's a very important perspective to maintain. The other thing that really, in a sense, proves the case of the Bible is this. If all four gospel accounts rigidly gave the very same account of the women coming to the tomb, how do you suppose skeptics would respond to that? Well, they'd cite the work of J. Warner Wallace, who's an investigative cold case detective, and say they caught their story straight because they were all in cahoots together. No four people are going to have the same perspective with the same details and emphasize the same points unless they all have the same brain. But if four people emphasize the same events, what do we see? Well, in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8, we see what? That an angel rolled away the stone, Mary and Mary Magdalene were there at the tomb, that the stone was rolled away by the time they got there, and he told them, of course, that he is risen. And the guard was gone. Yes. If we go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 11, we note what? That the stone was rolled away, that the angel was there. It was very large. But note, when they saw the young man clothed in a white robe, the angel, he told them exactly what had happened. And by the way, it mentions Mary Magdalene, no new information there, Mary the mother of James, no information there, and Salome, more information but not conflicting. If we go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. What do we read? On the first day of the week, same time, there were certain other women among them. Check. Check. And they uh, found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Check. Check. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord. That's important. It happened when they were greatly perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood in shining garments. Check. Check. So the angels are there. Then we go to John chapter 20. Notes on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, check, went to the tomb early, saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb, check, and she ran to the other disciples who told them they don't know where they laid him. So it doesn't mention the angel, but note, does it say there was nobody there, or does it mention what she did afterwards? And remember, just because one account mentions one angel and another account mentions two, doesn't mean there was only one and not two. So, great uh, opportunity to see the consistency of God's word. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.